questions of all our hearts be truly acceptable to you. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It is very good to be with you in worship this morning, to be back in this space together. I always love summer worship, but there is something about this space that lifts our hearts a little higher, I think, and it is good to be with you. Abraham, after the guests bowed down to him, said to them, My Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant, Abraham. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. We have decided for the first weeks of the autumn into November that we want to concentrate on the different elements of our worship, what they are, why we do them, what they're about, sometimes some history about them. This came up in a meeting we had this summer of one of our ministry teams that we might talk a little bit more about some of these elements. And so we begin today with what I wrote to you this week in my blog as what I consider the bedrock of our worship, a sense of welcome. That we are a welcoming people, and welcome should be at the heart and the foundation of our worship life together. And to help me with that, I invite you just to think for a moment about the first time you ever entered this church to worship. It may be today, or it may have been 40 years ago. And what it is that made you feel welcome, or not, and what it is that brought you back. Let's take a moment to think about that. And for those of you who feel bold enough, I may come back to you in a moment to share some of that. But I want to share with you a moment of welcome this summer that I had that I wasn't quite expecting. See, I did something I haven't done in over a decade, which is I went to Fenway Park for a Red Sox game. Now, I can't remember the last game. It was about 15 years ago or so. But I should tell you that I have a certain ambivalence about professional sports. However, I consider Fenway Park one of our local cultural institutions just as much as Symphony Hall or the Museum of Fine Arts or the New England Aquarium or any others that you can name. And I feel a certain sense of civic pride and duty to go every once in a while. So I told this to some friends last year and it never happened, and I told it again to some friends this year, and they got the tickets and made sure it happened. So on an early Friday in August, I went and enjoyed Fenway Park. Now, when the Red Sox won the World Series in 04, the first time in 86 years, I was a divinity school student then who was taking a course called Religious Dimensions and the Human Experience. And we were studying about the Aztecs and their home city, which is now Mexico City, and the Temple Mayor in the middle, which was the centerpiece of all their orientation to the world. And as I heard the roars coming up over the river into Cambridge from Fenway Park, I decided I had to go down and see the Templo Mayor. (laughs) I had to see all the pilgrims making their way, so I biked down there. And I have to say, the crowd was such that I was a little concerned that an unsuspecting New Yorker might be sacrificed on the green monster. (laughs) So I didn't stay for long. So this time I went to Fenway Park a little bit like a social anthropologist with a little interest in religion. And what amazed me was the sense of inclusion I felt in Fenway Park. Not being an avid 
sports fan and not being an avid baseball fan, they were playing a rather slow game with the White Sox. And I would say of all the major sports, baseball always seems to me to be the most (laughs) zen-like. But what I noticed was the ways that I felt welcomed, that I felt included. I expected to hear people sing the Star Spangled Banner and want to join in. I even expected to hear Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And being Fenway Park, I expected Sweet Caroline, which everyone seemed to know. But then when everyone sang Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer, I thought, who got the memo? (laughs) I was amazed at this sense of inclusion, people singing songs they all knew. I was amazed at the copious amounts of junk food, which go up and down at inflated prices at a regular interval until about the eighth inning when they cut off the drinking. And I noticed, even I got caught up into that, even though I'd had a good dinner and had a soft-serve ice cream cone, which is not on my usual diet, but tasted sweet and dripped down my arm. I also noticed when a teenager made his way out onto the field and then was brought off with his arm literally twisted behind his back, showing a look of pain, he got a standing ovation. Or all the balls that went out into the crowds, and we were focused for a moment on that person catching the ball, Even one moment on the upper deck when a guy caught the ball, slipped, and re-caught it again, and we all cheered for him. Or the moments when the jumbotron catches you dancing, and you wonder if you're on there or not, you may be paying attention to something else, and the elation that people have to be caught on the jumbotron and put up larger than life. All of it was quite inspiring to me, and... I left in a better mood than I expected to be, and I thought, if you weren't in a good mood, you were definitely in the wrong place or just having a bad day. The Red Sox organization has figured out how to make 37,000 people all feel a part of the group, all a part of the party. It reminded me of what our friend and colleague Nancy Taylor at Old South and Copley Square says, which is she believes that a sanctuary filled with worshipers can and should be as thrilling, as profoundly engaging, as riveting in its own way as Fenway Park when the Red Sox are in town. For as she puts it, it is given to us to handle the mysteries of life and death, time and eternity, spirit and flesh, good and evil. Sometimes we get a single, sometimes a home run, Sometimes we go into extra innings, as you know. (laughs) But there is something exciting and that we can learn from that kind of experience and that kind of welcome. I was caught up short this summer when someone who doesn't normally come to summer worship came for the first time. And then I asked afterwards how the experience was, and the person said they were a little afraid they might encounter wimpy worship downstairs in the summertime, which I have to say my ego took a little bruise there because I thought, We want intellectually and emotionally engaging worship, worship that channels both the head and the heart. And I will say that when we plan worship as a team, we try to keep in mind the person who has walked in the door for the first time. Because some people are coming into church for the very first time, and they don't really know about the prayers or the psalms or the scriptures or the verbiage we use or the hymnal or the kind of formality and grandeur of this space. It all is unfamiliar. And it is up to us, I believe, to welcome them in, to make them as comfortable as possible. But I'm also aware of the people who may be coming to church for the last time, 
whose souls long for some authentic, life-giving spiritual nourishment, who's still recovering from whatever damage was done to them in previous religious institutions. You know, I was one of those people once, and it was the simple gesture of an Episcopal priest asking my name before giving me communion and saying my name as she fed spiritual food to me. And it brought a flood of emotions and a sense that I had come home to a God who welcomed me wherever I was, regardless of who I was, and regardless of whatever church had gotten in the way of that knowledge. It's not only for the worship planners and leaders to keep in mind, it is something for all of us to keep in mind who we are welcoming in those doors and how we do it from the moment they step foot in here. Both our church council and our gathering ministry team and our communications team have been thinking about these things for some time. They want all of us to think of ourselves more as hosts than as guests. Or as one of my colleagues put it, that we sometimes need to take off our bibs and put on our aprons. That we come here and all of us are empowered to be gracious hosts in this space. We can easily look to Abraham and Sarah as our guides. There is an eagerness, a running to go help these guests, to give them food and comfort and water. Now, part of this is because where they lived at that time in Cana was a crossroads between Asia and Africa with lots of people streaming through and not much of a hospitality industry at that time. And so Abraham and Sarah were just like anybody else. If someone strange or unusual or new came into your presence... Your job was to welcome them. One scholar has outlined some of the tenets, the ethos of how to do this hospitality, and I think they apply to us in the 21st century. The first is that the stranger must be transformed from being a potential threat to becoming an ally just by the simple offer of hospitality. What is your name? How may I help you? Sit over here, or let me introduce you to this person. That the stranger has the right of refusal. They don't necessarily need to take our hospitality as we offer it. One of the best compliments I ever heard in a church about ushers was that they knew how to handle the introverts and the extroverts. The people who are ready to engage right way and have a conversation and the people who want to slip in and hardly even want God to notice them. How do we engage with people for all the different reasons they come in here? The third the third. Part of the ancient ethos was that hosts provide the very best they have. The fatted calf, the curds and honey, the welcome and the bread. The best things. And this, I think, is perhaps the most important thing to remember about the ancient world, is that the guest remains under the protection of the host until the guest has left the zone of obligation that we become a sanctuary truly for people who step in here. I am so aware of people outside these doors who come in tired and weary, hungry and thirsty, who need physical and spiritual food, water, and comfort. And you and I are Abraham and Sarah to offer that. Much later in the New Testament, the writer of the letter Hebrews says it very well for us all to remember, let love be genuine, do not hesitate to show hospitality to strangers, for in doing so, many have entertained angels without knowing it. Such was the case for Abraham and Sarah, and such is the case for us every time we extend welcome in this place. 
You see, I believe that church is the place where we do in training, in practice, what we are called to do with the rest of our lives. And we start right here in worship together. So for those of you who remember the time you first came here to worship and the welcome you received, I wonder if there are any, any volunteers who'd like to just share what that experience was like. Yes. Catherine Henderson says that Kathy Phoenix turned around and said hello to her and started chatting. And I've been coming here ever since. And she's been coming here ever since, and we supported her in her ordination to the Christian ministry. Katie. The voices and smiles of the children just warmed her heart. Yes, Gwen. Gwen came here and discovered someone she worked with and already knew David and Deborah were already in this place and gave her a sense of welcome right away. Yes, Lisa. So welcome by Paul Priestley, a lifetime member of this church, who I'm sure came bounding over to you to welcome you. And Julian said that the childcare room had the best toys ever. Yes, Linda. Carolyn Cox Flanagan invited her here as her friend, and then Phyllis Nelder of Blessed Memory brought her cookies. Something for us all to think about. Yes, Coinia. Coinia walking by a picnic we were having in Memorial Park and she saw this family she wanted to connect with who invited her to come in and join the picnic. And now they sit together in worship. Barbara. She, she saw Joan McCabe who she knew from her other church so she helped do a little sheep stealing here into this place which is great. Yes, one more. John. Ah. The graciousness that this congregation practices toward its children. These are just some of the many good reasons. What I know is that in all of these welcomes, in all of these stories we've heard, and there's one at least I know of someone who was invited to dinner that very night, or someone who was invited during the passing of the peace just acknowledge that their presence was here, a shy person welcomed in who actually has now stepped into leadership. All these ways that we welcome people, each of us has our own way to do it. But I do know there have been many Isaacs and much laughter and many wonderful things of God that have happened just from these moments of welcome that people experienced here. They have grown into great relationships 
a great knitting together of the body of Christ in this place. So here's the thing. I believe it matters for us to practice welcome in our worship because of what we take outside these walls. It does matter for this congregation. I will say to you that I believe we are poised to grow. We are poised to expand our numbers and expand our reach to share our gifts with the community because I believe there are people who are hungry for the kind of gifts and talents we have here. And it is our obligation as children of God, as followers of Christ, to share those gifts extravagantly. And you may have noticed our communications and gathering team have done that in some subtle and not so subtle ways, particularly with our rainbow chairs on the front lawn, which get all through the week people just hanging out on our lawn. I'd like to see us get free Wi-Fi out there for anyone who wants it. You'll also see our Black Lives Matter banner is a way of proclaiming our witness in the world, and the banners that have photographs of what's actually going on inside help people get past the formidable facade of this building. It also matters when we walk out these doors, how we bear witness about the good news of this place, how we experience God's love and acceptance here. A question that always haunts me is if your church burned down, would anyone in the neighborhood care? And I believe it's up to the pastors and all of us to get to know our neighbors right here in Coolidge Corner and let them know we are here as a resource and a house of comfort. But also, how do we carry that sense of welcome into our schools and our homes and our workplaces, even onto the streets of greater Boston? And yes, I believe that means how do we respond or engage with road rage when we experience it? Where is our welcome in all aspects of our life? And finally, I believe it matters for the world. In a world in which the number of refugees and displaced people has reached record amounts of 65 to 70 million people, one in every 113 people is displaced from their homeland. In a country where we are seeing a rise in racism, xenophobia, and bigotry, in a place where we have seen these natural disasters displacing people right before our very eyes, right at this very moment, in enacting policies that actually go against a biblical ethic to welcome the stranger, to house the refugee and the downtrodden, I believe that our sense of welcome is more important than ever. So I invite us to allow ourselves to be extravagant, to be generous, to open our hands and hearts in this place and in ever-increasing